Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. broadcast today is entitled, The Apostle Paul as a Pattern of Salvation. Today on Words of Grace, I want to do a little bit of cage rattling. Last week at our Wednesday night Bible study here at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, we studied the life of a very well-known figure in the Bible, Saul of Tarsus, whom we know today as the Apostle Paul. That message was a part of a Wednesday night series that we're presently undertaking on the lives of the apostles. And thus far, we've considered together in that series not only the work and the ministry, the authority of the apostles, we've considered the life of Peter, James, John, and now we're halfway through our thoughts on the life of the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, this apostle to the Gentiles that God used to write so much of the New Testament, a man who established New Testament churches in Eastern Europe and also Asia Minor. As we were studying through the life of the Apostle Paul, as we brought that study to a close, I made the statement sort of off the cuff that I want to elaborate on with you on Words of Grace today. By the way, it is common for me to get a thought in my mind, sometimes even as a random point in a tangent on a message, and hold on to it for some time, and that often becomes fodder for radio programs. This statement that I made is this. If my theology—listen carefully—if my theology cannot explain the miraculous and radical experience of Saul of Tarsus, then I need to reevaluate my views in light of the Bible. Now, let me go a step further. If my theology cannot directly plug into the experiences that we read about in the Bible, then something is awry, something is amiss. There's a misunderstanding in my mind, either in my theology or in the way that I'm viewing some of these experiences in the Bible. We can not only expect but also demand consistency 
between the theology that we teach and the experiences of people that are impacted by the Word of God in Holy Writ. There will not be a contradiction, in other words, between what happens in people's lives in the Bible and what the Bible says will happen in people's lives. We should expect it, and when people explain the Bible to us, we should demand that there's consistency in their teaching in light of what we read. Why do I emphasize that particular point today? Well, it's crucial to do so. It is biblical to do so, and I'll go a step further. Frankly, it is powerful for us to do so, to ensure that our theological grid is consistent with the experiences of people who are impacted by the Word of God in Scripture. Think about this for a second. If a person is correct in their theological framework, what they believe about how a person is saved. They should expect to find that system in play in real time in the historical narratives of Scripture. What are some examples of this? Well, if I think a person cannot be saved without taking communion, then logically, in the Bible, I shouldn't find anyone who is saved without having taken communion. Is that the case? Well, no. There are all sorts of examples of people who didn't take communion. All through the Old Testament, no one took communion. The very first people that we know who lived by faith, men like Abel, died without taking communion. But you might say, well, that's an Old Testament context. But there are people in the New Testament as well. For the most explicit example of this, think about the thief on the cross. This man is reviling Jesus at one moment. And in the next moment, he is praising Jesus, defending him, and asking him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Had the dying thief ever taken communion? No, he hadn't. While you're thinking about the thief on the cross, you might consider another point of view that are held by some people, baptismal regeneration, or at least the idea that there is no salvation without being baptized. Was the thief on the cross baptized? No, he wasn't baptized. So those views obviously don't align with Scripture. And I would just say that if anyone in my listening audience holds to those two views, that you have to take communion or you have to be baptized in order to be saved, just think about all of the people who have died, such as infants, such as the mentally handicapped, those who cannot take communion or be baptized. I don't know anyone who holds those points of views who would automatically condemn every person in those groups I just mentioned to an eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. Why, if Scripture is consistent in terms of salvation, would I need exceptions for someone like a baby who dies before they are born into the world, or someone who's mentally handicapped and cannot understand the gospel, respond to it, be baptized, and take communion? If you hold those views— and I bring those objections to you, and your response is to say, well, that's different. That's an exceptional case. When the Bible presents no such exceptions, that ought to let you know that something is at least not right. The dying thief on the cross had neither taken communion nor was he baptized, and yet Jesus says, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. How about another one that's popular in today's time, decisional regeneration? 
If decisional regeneration, the idea that you choose to become a regenerated person, as opposed to the biblical idea that salvation, that regeneration, quickening, is a divine miracle that takes you from death and sin to life in Christ, as the Bible teaches, if I teach decisional regeneration, if that were true, then you wouldn't expect to find people in the Bible quickened without this framework being in place. But think about John the Baptist. This man was, according to Scripture, filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. And this had such a profound effect on his life even before he were born into this world. Now, he's alive. He's John the Baptist. He's a baby. He's a human being. He's not yet had the umbilical cord cut. He's still developing in his mother's womb. And yet at the same time, this man is filled with the Holy Spirit, and as the mother of our Lord walks into the same room, John the Baptist leapt for joy in his mother's womb. The Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and this moved him in an act of celebration at Christ. Now, if decisional regeneration is the biblical framework, the story of John the Baptist makes no sense whatsoever, because you have a man who's quickened without making a decision. You have a man who is quickened without responding to a gospel message or the altar call or any such thing. He was merely quickened when he was dead in trespasses and in sins, and the next thing you know, by faith, he's leaping for joy in his mother's womb. If one makes decisional regeneration the rule, that biblical example does not fit. Has your cage been rattled today? If it has, keep listening. So to put this as plainly as I know how, theology should fit the specific cases of changed lives in the Bible. And if it doesn't, then that theology has a blind spot. And so today we want to take up the case of Saul of Tarsus, a man that Scripture calls the chief of sinners. As we take up the case of Saul of Tarsus, I want to begin with his own description of himself prior to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. This is found in a number of places in the Bible, but specifically what we want to consider today as we begin digging into his story, his encounter with Christ, comes from the book of 1 Timothy. Paul would recount his experience many, many times in many places, but we want to use 1 Timothy chapter 1 as our springboard into what the Bible would call the pattern of the believer that we find in the life of Saul of Tarsus. This is important because it will make it easy to emphasize this miraculous and radical change that happened in his life, but it also establishes a rule. What was the word that started with a P that I used just a moment ago from 1 Timothy chapter 1? Pattern. Paul is a pattern for the rest of us. So what we read about in Paul's life establishes a rule or a pattern that is to say what happened to Saul of Tarsus is in some way true for all of those who know Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a blasphemer is one who speaks evil of God, and a persecutor, he persecuted the church, and injurious, just look at the root of that word injury, you can imagine to what that refers, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. 
this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Notice that Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners. Why does he do this? Now, in this message, I've called him Paul, and I have called him Saul of Tarsus. Those are both terms, names that he would go by. Saul is obviously a Hebrew name named after King Saul, and Paul, Paulus, as it were, would be his name as a Roman citizen. Why does Paul refer to himself as the chief of sinners? He is not saying this as some sort of exaggeration. He isn't employing hyperbole, in other words. Nor is Paul feigning some sort of humility. When Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners, I'm the worst sinner that has ever existed, the worst of them all, he isn't acting in some false humility just to make people feel sorry for himself or to be dramatic. But Paul calls himself the chief of sinners because he was about the worst human being that was alive in the world at the time because, as you just read, he was a blasphemer and he was a persecutor of the Lord's church. In fact, he was the greatest persecutor of the church at that time prior to his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, let's consider that from the book of Acts, and we'll come back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we consider how he is the pattern of those who believe. In the book of Acts chapter 6, there are seven men who are set aside to help. They're appointed to help. The apostles are busy digging into the Word of God and praying and leading the church, and you have a murmuring between the Grecian widows and the Hebrew widows that the Grecians are not being cared for the way that they ought to be, and because of that, the twelve disciples, these apostles, say to Look out among them seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom that they can appoint over this business. And we generally trace the origins of deacons to this chapter. Deacons were not in the church and the Lord's ministry in a specific sense. But it's also important to notice that two of these men, at least, go out and preach the gospel. Stephen, that we'll read about in a moment, and another man named Philip that later in the book of Acts, would be called Philip the Evangelist, evangelist being one of the type of elder in the book of Ephesians, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, some people will say, well, they were only ordained as deacons and later became preachers. In the case of Philip, some will say, well, they were ordained as preachers, not deacons, and deacons came later. More than likely, in this infancy of the church, those specific responsibilities and offices were not so clearly defined. And so they look out among them, seven men that can help. That's really what they're doing. They're ministering. They're helping. They just want to help the church to take care of these widows so that nobody falls through the cracks, so the apostles can continue their ministerial studies and prayer. And as this happens, a couple of these men are so filled with the Holy Spirit 
Stephen goes out and immediately preaches. Philip begins a ministry as the church is persecuted. He flees up into Samaria. He preaches the gospel everywhere he goes, and God uses him to preach. You have to remember that things are still being hammered out in the early church. They were given authority, the keys of the kingdom, as it were. What they would bind in earth would be bound in heaven. What they would loose in earth would be loosed in heaven. That's simply saying that God grants unto them authority and recognizes what they do as the apostles. This man, Stephen, goes out and begins preaching the gospel. As he does this, there is great kickback against his message and against him. By the end of chapter 7, as Stephen begins all the way back in the days of the patriarch and goes all the way up in his sermon and to the very present time, he refers to the fact that this generation of people murdered the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know Jesus had to lay down his life And if he laid down his life, he would take it again. No man took it from him. He went as a lamb done before the shearers, but they did execute him. He had to voluntarily go as a lamb done before the shearers, but they did execute him. And the Bible refers to it as such. They, with wicked hands, have taken and crucified and slain the Messiah. They were guilty of that. Well, as Stephen is preaching this message to them, they are absolutely offended. They are infuriated at what Stephen teaches. They were cut to the heart, as Acts 7.54 says, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Some people take gnashing on him with their teeth to mean they bite him, but gnashing of teeth is an idiom or a figure of speech in the Bible that means anger. For instance, when there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, sometimes people believe that means gritting of teeth in pain, but it's actually indicative of anger. You see, they gnash on Stephen with their teeth right here, and what that means is they're making a mean, angry face at Stephen. Have you ever seen people when they're angry and they're at the point of screaming at someone, the face that they make? It kind of looks like Hulk the Incredible Hulk from the Marvel movies, that's the facial expression these people are making. And as they're livid with him, he looks into heaven and he sees Jesus standing on the right hand of God. He says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man on the right hand of God. And they cry out with a loud voice. They stop up their ears. They ran upon him with one accord. Now, if they were biting him, they wouldn't have to run upon him with one accord. But they were standing away from him, they're making mean faces, and they're screaming at him, they're offended at him, they're angry at him. He sees Jesus in heaven, and as he says this, they close their ears, and they run, and they grab him. They cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. But listen, the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man whose name was what? Whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus Receive my spirit. Stephen is calling upon God and calling upon Christ, and he dies saying, Lord, lay not this into their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, where do you think he got that example from? Well, when the Lord was upon the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen is repeating what he knows of Christ. He's living a Christ-like existence, a Christ-like life. Notice what you read in chapter 8 and verse 1. As we think about Saul as the chief of sinners, Saul was consenting unto his death. Now, 
back where they're laying their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, maybe that's not explicit enough for you about how Saul was and how sinful and wicked he was, how he was a persecutor. But notice in verse 1 of chapter 8, he's there consenting unto the death of Stephen. He approves of it. He is glad about it. And the death of Stephen sparks a great persecution against the church at Jerusalem, which causes the disciples to scatter throughout Judea and Samaria. And this would actually lead to the evangelizing of these regions. Churches would be planted all through these regions because, as you read in verse 4, those that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, that's amazing because anytime Satan tries to stamp out the church with persecution, all he does is spread around the embers and causes the fire to blaze even more. God will not be mocked. He will win. And when his church is persecuted the greatest, that's when it grows the most. One of the causes of the great spiritual anemia in American Christendom today is the ease with which we have it as we are worshiping God. Look at verse 3. What does Saul do? He made havoc of the church. That word havoc means that he destroyed it, and he dragged men and women out of their homes and committed them to prison. And so he is persecuting the church. Later in the book of Acts, as he recounts his experience, he would say that he compelled them to blaspheme, which implies torture. That's very horrific. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, we read that he is yet still breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And because of that, he went to the high priest and obtained power to go and to arrest and punish any Christian anyone who walked according to this way that he found wherever it was that he was. And so he is breathing threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Once again, he refers back to this period of his life often as he preaches the gospel, because the gospel is the rescue of sinners from their sin. This is what Jesus does, and the message of the gospel is the proclamation of that. As he refers to his past in Galatians 1, Paul would say, For ye have heard of my conversation, the word conversation means lifestyle, in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Wasted is a strong word. It means to destroy. And interestingly enough, this Greek word is eporthun, and it occurs only three times in the New Testament, each time having reference to Saul's mistreatment of the church. So this strong word, meaning destroy, only finds its usage with reference to Paul. So what happens to this villain? Well, remember, again, that salvation is about Jesus Christ saving sinners from their sin because of God's love for them, period. The real gospel message excludes self-righteousness. We are all vile wretches who have received the unmerited favor of Almighty God. Jesus arrests Saul with his grace. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Saul, trembling, says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Saul of Tarsus is regenerated right here. He's quickened right here. He was dead in sin, but he's now quickened to life. He was hateful and hating one another. But now he's washed with the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. 
Saul was just saved by grace. As John 5 says, he heard the voice of the Son of God, and he lived. He came to life at the sound of the voice of Jesus Christ. Now, back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Did you notice how Paul describes his experience? He refers to it as a pattern of them that believe. How is Paul's experience some sort of pattern for us? Surely there are parts of his experience that are unique to him. When you were regenerated, you likely were not in political power arresting Christians. You likely were not on the road to Damascus. You likely didn't see a light brighter than the noonday sun, experience three days of blindness, etc. So how is Paul a pattern? Well, number one, according to God's own words to Ananias later in Acts chapter 9, Paul was a chosen vessel. Paul was chosen. You and I have been chosen according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Number two, Paul had a personal encounter with Jesus that included Jesus speaking to him. Please view that in light of John chapter 5. In John 5, we read, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That's referring to quickening, the new birth. We hear the voice of the Son of God when we are dead, and we come to life like Lazarus when he came out of the tomb being dead for four days. Number three, not only did Paul have nothing to do with this, he was completely hostile and opposed to this way of life and to Christ prior to this experience. And yet, afterwards, he is found asking what Jesus would have him to do. Might I suggest that this is true for us as well? Prior to the new birth, we are at enmity with Christ. We are dead in trespasses and in sins. As Titus says, we are hateful and hating one another, and it is Christ who miraculously changes us. If we are desiring of Christ, Lord, what would you have me to do? It is because he has raised us to life, making us new creatures in Christ Jesus. Number four, did you notice anyone else mediating between Jesus and Saul? Was there anyone compelling him? Was there any gripping argument made by a preacher or by a priest? Any media resources? Was there an altar call that Paul responded to? Anything at all? No. And in fact, anyone who preached to Saul of Tarsus, had suffered for doing so. If Christ had not arrested him by his grace, as it were, that would have continued as well. But God called Saul of Tarsus by his grace and changed him forever. Jesus had a one-on-one -on -one experience with Saul that was not asked for nor prompted by Saul. And guess what? That's the way that it is with all of us. Read John 3, 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, Canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. This is a rule with no exception. We are quickened by the Holy Ghost who moves as the wind, blowing when and where he pleases. That's the case with Saul, that's the case with you, and that's the case with me. It fits John the Baptist, it fits the thief on the cross, it fits Cornelius, it fits Lydia the seller of purple, it fits every single example in the Bible. In closing, I call this sort of thing rubber-meets-the-road theology. 
Regardless of what we think, our own individual legalisms, our judgments, our traditions, popular opinion, or even some of the historical frameworks of salvation in church history, Saul, according to the Bible, was a pattern of the believer. And so what was true for him is true for us as well. Whatever I believe about the salvation of sinners must align with this to be accurate. As Paul said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write, let me know that you've received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at MarchToZion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.